I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. If you appreciate Cato's research and analysis, I'd like to ask you to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance the ideals of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. If you support our mission by becoming a new Cato Podcast sponsor or renew your sponsorship with an increased gift, one generous sponsor will be matching your gift dollar for dollar that will double your impact. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our work. This is the only time of the year when I make this request, so I'm adding something as well. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I will gladly give you a shout out on the podcast, or you can designate an individual to receive all the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 31st, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The United States became less open in the Trump years, less open to immigrants, less open to trade. In his new book, Open, The Story of Human Progress, Johan Norberg argues that humanity's embrace of openness is the key to our success. We spoke earlier this month. Having observed uh, this very sort of odd U.S. election and... I suppose in some other countries, some changes in power over the last five or six years. Uh, How are we doing in terms of openness? It's a bit of a mixed bag right now, because on the one hand, you have this authoritarian backlash against uh, openness and globalization in many countries. There's been a revival for uh, the strongman in many places. Uh, On the other hand, technology and forces in science and uh, the economy has made it possible for more people to connect than ever before. So even though we've seen, especially during the pandemic, uh, according to Freedom House, some uh, 80 countries have reduced uh, freedoms during the pandemic. At the same time, we've seen more communication, more cooperation when it comes to science and uh, information than we've ever seen before. And that's one of the reasons why we've been able to deal with this disease faster than we've ever done before. I mean, just just look at the vaccines. it used to take uh, 20 years, uh, and uh, once upon a time it took us 3,000 years to develop a vaccine against uh, polio. Now it took us something like three months because people on different continents cooperate. Right, and the, the Moderna vaccine was at least uh, existed in January, which is mind-boggling. Apparently with their kind of technology and the level of the knowledge they had, it took them some two days to tweak their formula and turn it into a functioning vaccine. And that's just uh, unbelievable until you realize that uh, this is because tens of thousands of people, of people on different continents have cooperated to come up with this knowledge and this technology. And that's an enormous force for progress, even though when you look at politics, it's it's quite easy to become depressed because uh, they are constantly blaming openness and trade and uh, exchange for all society's ills. Do you think that there is this disconnect between people's ability or desire to have the products of openness and their sense that openness means bad things for 
for them, for their incomes, for their families. Yes, I think there's a disconnect there that explains a lot of the disarray we're in when it comes to the political discourse. We like, we love, and we depend on all the goods and the services and the knowledge that we're getting from openness. Uh, It's all a result of cooperation. Even getting just a cup of coffee in your cup every morning is dependent on on the work of uh, tens of thousands of of people cooperating. Uh, But we take that for granted. We've got those things, and we rarely think about the incredible difficulty in coming up with all these cooperations, uh, but we immediately think of all the problems that any kind of openness, any kind of import from another place creates, because it's it's what uh, Frederick Bastiat once upon a time talked about as what is seen and what is not seen. What is not seen is the um, reduction in prices, the increased purchasing power, the access to goods and services that we we have everywhere because it's in our wardrobes, it's in our computer, it's on, in our refrigerators. We not do not connect that instantly to uh, free trade. But we do whenever a factory has to uh, be um, closed down because we suddenly get com- competition from another place. So Whenever something is dispersed in time and geography, it's very difficult to uh, go through all the processes, all the uh, connections that made it possible. And that's why we need um, economic science. That's why we need uh, uh, books and lectures constantly reminding us of that. Otherwise, we only see the short-term problems. I think we see that a lot as well in um, who societies demonize. Uh, That is, Steve Jobs, for example, was hailed as this uh, genius businessman because he was uh, not only the face of it, but also the products that he created uh, improved people's lives dramatically. Um, We don't think the same way about uh, investment bankers or people whose activities are may well be extremely productive uh, and benefit us enormously, but they their activities are relatively opaque. Yeah, there is uh, something that economists talk about as the physical fallacy, the fact that uh, our minds have evolved over basically hundreds of thousands of years to see the value of having the right kind of rock or volcanic glass or shelter. And if someone creates that, we see that this is really a benefactor of of mankind. But if someone helps us to, you know, the the atoms are always there. Uh, They've always been there. And the interesting thing is who can arrange it into a beneficial uh, transformation that contributes to the value of those atoms. Well, that could be the person who comes up with funding it, could be the design, could be the person who gives us information about it, or who just comes up with an idea. Uh, Our minds aren't really developed to understand the value that they are giving us. And that's why we always talk about the the middle men who are supposedly not contributing anything to uh, wealth. And in a way, Socialism is, in its uh, Marxist formulation is a is a version of the f- physical uh, 
fallacy. The fact that you only think that the person who lays his hands on the atoms and transforms it into something that we can use, according to that kind of labor theory of value, is the only person who contributes to uh, the wealth uh, that we're we're getting. And obviously, that's not the case. Um, taking the risk, uh, finding the market, connecting uh, the worker with uh, finance and with the end consumer, without that, it wouldn't be worth anything. It reminds me of this uh, old paper uh, that was uh, published in, I, I'm looking at it, Economica. The Economic Organization of a POW Camp uh, by Robert Radford. Uh, and in it, he sort of details the rations that everybody received at a POW camp and the extent to which the person who was engaged, facilitating all of the trade that was going on profited handsomely while everyone else was also made better off considerably. And that person is actually the one that creates the most value when we look at human history, because the, the reason why we were desperately poor for almost 300,000 years, uh, the average human being, is that we were all Renaissance men, in a way. We all had to have all the knowledge that it took to um, hunt, to gather, to grow food, to make our clothes, everything. The thing that has increased our wealth spectacularly during the last 200 years and reduced extreme poverty globally from around 90% to 9% today is the fact that we now can benefit from knowledge that we do not possess. And that's only made possible because we started to exchange ideas, favors, goods and services. And uh, therefore, we could also benefit from the work that everybody else did. And for that, we need uh, open exchange. We need trade. And uh, that made all the difference. When we try to take stock of the risks associated with relatively less openness globally, you know, I, I think a lot of people say, well, look, this kind of openness would be bad for me so I can oppose it. Um, but all these other kinds of openness are great uh, for me because I get to consume all of these things. Um, and you don't necessarily see the what you're losing until it's until it's gone with respect to uh, trade in ideas, in goods and services. So how do you evaluate the risks associated with, as you mentioned, this this backlash against, openness and uh, the tribalism that causes it and then is caused by it. Well, what is most interesting when I look at all the goods and services and technologies that we now take for granted and use every day and that we wouldn't want to live without, is that they all started as a... Um, an idea from a tiny minority. Uh, most people saw it as uh, worthless or impossible or stupid. And that goes not just for um, counterintuitive things like uh, vaccines and uh, uh, biotechnology. It even goes for simple, what we nowadays think of as simple technologies. I mean, uh, take um, 
the umbrella, the first person who used an umbrella in London uh, 250 years ago, he was uh, attacked viciously and taunted and uh, uh, people spat at him because it looked stupid to um, protect yourself against the rain. And the coach drivers thought that their jobs would be lost if uh, if people could walk around in the rain and didn't have to take a coach. Uh, Everything started as a surprise, and that's the greatest benefit of openness. Um, as Hayek once um, put it, to leave the most possible room for surprises. That's the thing that gives us uh, progress in the future as well. Had we known what we would lose without openness, well, we could have made that uh, calculation and say that, well, uh, the, um, the costs might be greater than the benefit. But the greatest benefit in every era from openness comes from surprises, being open to the things that are counterintuitive and that you think are worthless right now. It's only because we have open societies, open markets with a decentralized funding base so that someone who believes in this crazy idea that someone comes up with in a garage, that's the only reason why they can live for a longer period of time and prove their worth. And in the end, they'll prove to be the next umbrella or the next personal computer or the next uh, life-saving drug. This may get away a little bit from what you argue in the book, but on an individual basis, of course, openness is an attitude. And as far as I can tell, governments don't really have attitudes or the, the attitudes are informed by people. Uh, is this a problem of individual thoughts about the world? Well, I think that governments and or at least politicians respond to the attitudes that uh, the voters express, or at least the loudest voters. And uh, then the problem is that we are double-natured as individuals. We are traders by nature. We exchange. We've always exchanged goods and favors and ideas with one another. But we're not just traders. We're also tribalists. We are also used to, and this is also an evolutionary adaptation in a way, most of the time we traded within our tribe. And oftentimes the exchanges when we ran into other bands and tribes were quite often violent and problematic, and at least it forced us to be uh, suspicious of anyone who seemed to be loyal to the other gang in a way. And we can see that nowadays in psychological experiments. It's very easy to for us to start dividing people into us and them and think there are different groups here and we play zero-sum games. And uh, for most of mankind's existence, it was a zero-sum game. If someone else was spectacularly wealthy, it was probably because they stole most of the stuff from you. So we're always suspicious about these things. Now, in individually, acting as individuals, it it's not a big problem because then we're seeking maximum profit under a system of rule of law that makes sure that the deals only happen if we both uh, benefit from it. Uh, but whenever we think of ourselves as members of a team, of a group, of a party, that starts these models in our brains that gives us the uh, idea that it's a zero-sum game that we're playing with the others. And then we're not looking for maximum 
profit, maximum mutual gain. We're starting to look for maximum difference between ourselves and the others. And we're even willing to forego benefits to ourselves and, and hurt ourselves if it hurts the others more. And that's, I think, a basic reason why the economy works often and culture and science work well, because it's a plus some uh, logic that uh, guides this. But politics doesn't work well because it's a zero-sum uh, logic that, that governs at least our thoughts about it. So we're starting to think about how can we hurt others or at least how can we benefit on their expense whenever we're talking about could be local domestic politics and regulation, or it could be international negotiations and trade deals. We our, our brains start to function in a way that doesn't help us out. Oh, I I hear the words in my head. This country or that country is ripping us off. Exactly. These politicians have sold us out, and I alone can fix it. <laughs> And that's what you hear from politicians in almost every country. And I think it's because they speak to our reptilian brains, not to the better angels of our, our nature. Uh, because if you think about it, uh, if, if Homo sapien has been around for some 300,000 years, if we were to condense those 300,000 years into 24 hours, then we have only lived with a system where we've had uh, widespread rule of law, widespread economic growth that lifted most groups at the same time, uh, where we've had rapid technological innovation. That's been around for some 200 years uh, after the Industrial Revolution. And that's actually the last minute of those 24 hours. And that's that's a great 60 seconds. That's where we get all our wealth and health and our lifespans and so on. But it's not where we're getting our attitudes, our belief systems and our instincts. They come from the previous 86,400 seconds. And of course, our prehistory is much longer than that. So it's not strange that we believe in this zero-sum game because uh, most of Homo sapiens' existence, it was a zero-sum game. And obviously then when demagogues and politicians and strongmen try to stir up our emotions, they speak to those uh, more than 99% of our existence and tell us that, you know, the 1% are ripping us off, or the immigrants are taking our jobs, or that country with that trade surplus, they, they've, uh, they've ripped us off. And, um, and that's why we have to count to 10. <laughs> Not listen too much to the demagogues and the zero summers, because all the great stuff comes from when we know that the world and the economy and knowledge and, and uh, technology can be plus some games for everybody. Johan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the new book, Open, The Story of Human Progress. In this season of giving, you should consider becoming a Cato podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started.